1: Welcome to the reading of the Courier-Journal for Friday, February 24th, 2023, which is brought to our Louisville listeners via Louisville Public Media. As a reminder, Radio Eye is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. Your reader for today is Chauncey Hertz. First, let's read the local weather forecast from the WHAS 11 Storm Alert Team. The local forecast is we will experience a lot of sun once again today, but it will turn a lot cooler. The wind will stay light as high temperatures rise to both sides of 50. Expect a lot warmer air this weekend. As a low pressure meanders to our south, a few showers will clip our southern area Saturday. A much better chance for spotty light rain will arrive Sunday, and storms will move in on Monday. The high today should be 50 and it should be mostly sunny and cooler. Tonight the low will be 34 with mostly cloudy skies. Saturday, high will be 55, low will be 41, and there will be spotty rain to the south. Sunday, expect a high of 62 and a low of 53 with a few showers at times. Monday, high of 70 and low of 44. Showers and storms will be likely. Tuesday, a high of 58, a low of 43. It will be sunny and mild. And Wednesday, a high of 66, a low of 45. And it will be warm and bright. And now, the weather almanac for Louisville through 4 p.m. on Thursday. The temperature high was 74. The low is 56. Normal high is 51, and the normal low is 33. A record high was 76 in 1996, and the record low was 5 degrees in 1963. 24 hours of precipitation through 4 p.m. on Thursday was 0.33 inches. The month to date has been 2.61 inches. The normal month to date is 2.71 inches. Year to date, there has been 7.97 inches of precipitation, and the normal year to date is 6.10 inches. Snowfall for the 24 hours through 4 p.m. on Thursday was zero. The month to date there has only been a trace. The normal month to date is 3.5 inches. The season to date is 5.9 inches, and the normal season to date is 10.6 inches. Air quality yesterday was in the moderate range. Today, expected to be good. As for the sun and moon cycles, on Friday, the sun will rise at 7.22 and set at 6.31 p.m. The moonrise will be at 9.53 a.m. and will set at 11.50 p.m. Saturday, sunrise will be at 7.21 a.m. and sunset will be at 6.32 p.m. The moonrise will be at 10.21 a.m. and it will set none. The first quarter of the moon will be on February 27th, the full moon will be on March 7th, the last quarter of the moon will be on March 14th, and a new moon will arrive on March 21st. Weather history on this date, ice on the lower Susquehanna River in Maryland began to break on February 24th, 1852. During the preceding 40 days, an ice bridge across the river had been used for the crossing of 1,378 loaded freight cars. Now to the front page. Our first article from the front page of today's edition is entitled, New Sweeping Anti-Trans Bill is Being Fast-Tracked, Transition Services for Kids Targeted Statewide by Olivia Krauth. A sweeping new piece of anti-transgender legislation is being fast-tracked through Kentucky's legislature, quickly being assigned to a committee and racking up 20 co-sponsors after its Thursday filing. Under House Bill 470, gender transition services for trans kids would be virtually barred statewide. Quote, gender transition is broadly defined in the bill, applying to any service meant to, quote, assist a person with a gender transition. This would include things to help youth transition socially, such as using the student's correct pronouns or new name. Physical and mental health care providers found to have helped provide transition-related services, which are backed by major medical organizations, to those under 18 would lose their licenses. If those providers worked at a place receiving public money, the funding would be pulled. Healthcare care providers would be required to report providing any type of gender-affirming care to someone under the age of 18 within 30 days. If they didn't, they could face criminal charges. They also would be liable should someone sue over services they provided, while providers who refuse to provide such services would be protected against legal, professional, licensing, and disciplinary pursuits. In school, educators would be required to out trans and non-binary kids to their parents if they asked for a new name or pronouns, change their gender expression, or there was an, quote, inconsistency between the sex or gender they were born as and how they feel. Anyone under 18 could no longer legally change their name if the change appeared tied to a, quote, social or physical gender transition. Documents like birth certificates, also couldn't be amended. The bill, which is sponsored by Representative Jennifer Decker, a Republican from Wadi, says it would take effect in January 2024, so any minors currently using puberty blockers would have time for the appropriate medication tapering. Decker's bill is dubbed the Do No Harm Act, although several trans individuals and their allies have testified already this session, that even small acts of affirming trans students' identities, like using the correct pronouns, are shown to reduce the chances that student will consider suicide. H- HB470 is the latest in a slew of bills targeting the LGBTQ community, particularly trans youths, filed in this year's legislative session. <clears throat> Quote, the Kentucky General Assembly's fixation on transgender kids is beyond belief. Chris Hartman, who leads the Fairness Campaign, said Wednesday, quote, Though less than 1% of the total population, transgender kids have been the target of more than a half dozen bills by state lawmakers already this year. Several, quote, parents' rights bills include provisions either restricting gender transition services, outing students to their parents, or allowing teachers to ignore a student's preferred pronoun or name. One such measure, Senate Bill 150, already cleared the Senate and now waits in the House for consideration. Other proposals include forcing students to use the school bathroom tied to their biological sex, even if they don't identify with it. House Bill 120 also would prohibit gender transition procedures for youths. Quote, make no mistake, Any one of these bills will lead to the death of transgender kids in Kentucky, but HB 470 will lead to more youth suicides than we can imagine, Hartman said. Quote, and not a single lawmaker co-sponsoring these bills has acknowledged the tragic outcomes they will cause. HB 470 has been assigned to the House Judiciary Committee, which tends to meet at noon every Wednesday. The bill is not yet scheduled to be heard in committee. The next article from the front page of today's edition is entitled, quote, Future State Plan Advancing. JCPS makes gains in six key areas of focus by Krista Johnson. Four years ago this summer, Jefferson County public school leaders went to the drawing board to identify the biggest issues it faces and how to advance. What they came up with was six areas to focus on guided by the principles of increasing racial equality, increasing engagement, and improving climate and culture. And despite the COVID pandemic unexpectedly creating major challenges, JCPS has made large strides toward reaching the plan's goals. The focus areas are technology, extended learning, student assignment, facilities, workforce and leadership development, and resourcing high-poverty schools. Quote, the future state of JCPS seeks to transform our students, our schools, and our city through strategic investment in the critical elements needed for all JCPS students to fulfill their academic, creative, and social potential, according to the district. Now, with Superintendent Marty Polio giving his State of the District address Thursday, we review where the district stands on these plans. How has the district's use of technology expanded? Thanks in part to the surge of federal dollars that came due to the pandemic, the district has a mobile device for each of the about 96,000 students in the system, a huge spike given that about five years ago, the district had less than 13,000 Chromebooks, according to Kermit Belcher, JCPS's information technology chief. The district also has established a replacement cycle for devices, established more opportunities of, of, to incorporate technology within lessons, and ensured students have Internet access outside the school day. Quote, I think this is one of the most innovative and sustainable plans that I've heard of, Belcher said, of how the district has expanded Internet access. At the start of the pandemic, JPCS gave hotspots to students without Wi-Fi access, but quickly realized that was not sustainable, Belcher said. About three years ago, the district began replacing 25% of its devices each year, and the new devices are LTE Chromebooks, which are cellular-enabled. Today, about 70,000 of the district's devices have this capability. Next year, all of them will. Paying for Internet for nearly 100,000 devices would be costly, but Internet access was expanded this year to all students outside the school day through an agreement with T-Mobile. Quote, we have the largest family plan in the nation, Belcher said, explaining that the district only has to pay for the data that is actually used, meaning it isn't paying for data for devices that aren't taken home or are taken to a home that already has Wi-Fi. The district has invested in interactive panels, similar to smart boards, for every classroom and is putting in audio enhancements to amplify teachers' voices, among other things. All of this, Belcher said, has resulted in a, quote, digital transformation. Our students given more opportunities for learning outside school. Prior to the pandemic, summer school was used by many districts simply as a measure, a means to credit recovery rather than a tool to combat learning loss. Once it became apparent all students would need additional learning time to combat losses due to school closures, districts ramped up efforts on this front. JCPS leaders recognized the need to increase its access to summer programming when they began work on its new strategic plan in the summer of 2019. The goal was to increase participation of black students by 10%, Assistant Superintendent Michelle Dillard said. Quote, We know our students of color are behind academically, Dillard said. We see the achievement gap, and we wanted to make sure we were able to target them specifically. The district previously had 11 school sites where students could enroll in its summer backpack league, but this past summer, that number increased to 16 besides the 57 sites offered through community partners. The district also opened registration early for black students and those who struggled with absenteeism. In the summer of 2020, less than 5,000 JPCS students participated in the Backpack League. Last summer, there were about 11,300. Approximately 80% of the attendees were students of color, and more than 60% were considered economically disadvantaged. Polio would like to see 20,000 students enrolled in the Backpack League, Dillard said. Have workforce development efforts helped the teacher shortage? Districts have struggled with the national teacher shortage. When the future state plan was being developed, JCPS recognized that a lot of principals were approaching retirement and there wasn't a pipeline to fill those roles. The plan identified the need to create that pipeline, as well as being bring more educators into the profession with equity in mind. Quote, we wanted to ensure these leaders could lead buildings where all students' needs were considered and taken care of, said Amy Green Webb, the district's chief of human resources. Achieving that goal was helped by an $8.2 million grant from the Wallace Foundation to, quote, help develop and support equity-centered school leaders which the district received in 2021. With that money, the district partnered with universities to offer an emerging leader program. The district set a goal to increase the number of principals of color to 49%, and today that rate is just under 47%, it says. On the workforce development side, JCPS launched its Louisville Teacher Residency Program which pays for aspiring teachers to receive their master's degree from the University of Louisville. Those who complete the program work in one of the district's neediest schools for five years. In its third year, the program has certified more than 50 teachers, and an additional 32 are enrolled. Other work includes removing barriers to those wanting to become a certified teacher, thanks to a nearly $300,000 grant from the Kentucky Department of Education. J.C.P.S. can offer financial assistance for GPA recovery, testing costs, and, quote, anything that is standing in the way of getting them on the pathway to becoming a teacher, Green Webb said. The district also has ramped up its retention efforts, Green Webb said. Three years ago, the district identified 17 schools with the highest attrition rates and began speaking with teachers in them to learn more about why people were leaving JCPS then gave additional resources to the schools to help alleviate the issues. That work is now going on in all schools, Green Webb said, and as a district, the retention rate increased from 72% in 2019-20 to to 84.7% in 2021-22, but JCPS is still short about 300 teachers. What Changed Under the New Student Assignment Plan The biggest story out of JCPS last year was the passing of its new Student Assignment Plan, which will change the makeup of the system this fall. The plan took years to develop and faced months of scrutiny and revisions. Now West End families have a choice in whether their students attend a school closer to home or not. The plan established a, quote, choice zone composed of 13 schools in or near the West End. In January, 91% of families living in the choice zone had informed the district of their school of choice. Of the 1,779 applicants, more than 60% chose to stay in their community. At the elementary level, the rate was 83%. Of the zone's schools, two are participating in major jump in enrollment. Kennedy Elementary could see a 31% increase this fall, and at Shawnee, nearly 400 additional students are expected to enroll, an increase of 43%. The new plan also created a set of changes to the district's magnet schools. Now magnet programs can no longer kick out students, and some schools will gain magnet programs, while others will lose theirs. What extra supports have been given to high school needs students? Another aspect of the assignment plan was to give more resources to the schools within the choice zone, which aligns with the district's future state plan. Choice zone schools, where the majority of students are considered economically disadvantaged, Will now be able to hire teachers before schools elsewhere in the district, and the teachers working in the zone will receive an $8,000 annual stipend. Principals in those schools will receive a $10,000 annual stipend. Polio said this would give high-need schools easier access to top teachers and give them more time to fill persistently vacant spots. Aside from the additional salary. The schools will be allocated $12 million annually, and the schools are guaranteed smaller class sizes with a 20-to-1 ratio. Are schools being renovated or rebuilt? Quote, If we complete this in the next 10 years, it will be the most aggressive building campaign in JCPS since 1976, Polio said of the district's vision to spend about $2 billion on its facilities. The district's 10-year facilities vision outlines how it would address $1.3 billion in unmet maintenance needs across the system's more than 160 buildings. JCPS has gained approval for its four-year plan that includes constructing eight new buildings for existing schools, as well as a new early childhood center. Additionally, the plan outlines significant renovations to eight schools. These projects are expected to cost about $645 million. The hope is to start constructing 23 new schools by 2032, besides the two buildings currently being built, that are set to open in August. Our last story from the front page of today's edition is entitled Ford Plant Stalls for Third Week. Quality Control Issues, Keeping 3200 Off Job by Olivia Evans. The Ford Louisville assembly plant has entered its third week of stalled production as the car manufacturer addresses, quote, quality control issues, keeping roughly 3,200 hourly employees off the assembly line. Last week, the plant, which produces the Ford Escape and the Lincoln Corsair, was temporarily shut down due to a software issue with the vehicles. The issue was detected during quality control measures, which Ford has put in place in an effort to discover problems prior to sale. Quote, When the plant is down, you've affected the vast majority of the people there, Kelly Felker, a spokesperson at Ford, told the Courier-Journal. Maria Buskowski, a quality control spokesperson at the plant, Told the Courier Journal the current work cease at Louisville Assembly Plant, where production and skilled trade workers are not working while a Ford assesses the software issue is, quote, really normal routine. Union representatives, however, said a total production stop to try to immediately resolve potential issues with vehicles is new. Quote, this is somewhat of a different approach, said Todd Dunn, president of UAW Local 862, which represents rank-and-file union workers at Ford's two Louisville-based plants. Quote, we were somewhat surprised over prior launch stoppages that had been spread out. As of Monday, Felker told the Courier-Journal there was not yet a labor relations bulletin with a return-to-work date for Louisville assembly plant workers who have been impacted by the production halt. Here's what else to know about the temporary work cease and what it means for Ford. What shutdown means for workers? Buskowski told the Courier-Journal, the 2023 model escape currently being built at the plant is in, quote, pre-build, meaning the company is in its early building stages. Quote, you build, build the vehicle, you understand that there are issues, and you continue doing that until you start producing them for customers, she said. Vehicles currently produced at the plant are not intended for sale to customers and are instead vehicles for employees. Quote, the majority of the vehicles that have been built are Ford employees' vehicles. No vehicles will be shipped until they've been put through a rigorous quality inspection, Felker told the Courier-Journal. Dunn noted the full shutdown is different than past approaches, where Ford employees would quote, build products and fixed it in the yard and various locations around Louisville. Quote, we were surprised that Ford would take this approach. However, it is an approach that can work, Dunn told the Courier-Journal. The importance of quality products has recently been stressed by Ford. In June 2022, Ford recalled 2.9 million vehicles, including roughly 1.7 million 2019 through 2019 escape models, due to an issue with vehicle being unable to shift into the correct gear, according to the U.S. Department of Transportation. Ford CEO Jim Farley revealed that warranty costs related to vehicle recalls reached $5 billion in 2019 and vehicle launch problems have cost the company company roughly $1 billion, according to reporting from the Detroit Free Press. Will workers still get paid? According to the Labor Relations bulletin shared with the Courier-Journal on February 15th, Ford will apply for unemployment on behalf of its employees. Felker noted hourly employees who have at least one year of seniority will receive about 75% of their gross pay through unemployment and supplemental unemployment benefits, during the temporary shutdown. Ford did not provide the Courier-Journal with information on how much longer employees can expect the shutdown to last. Quote, While this downtime concerns us for our union members and employees at Ford Motor Company and the economic impact that it creates, we are thankful for the contractual benefits that are in place for our union members to offset that outcome, Dunn told the Courier-Journal. What does, quote, quality control mean? Any issue a customer may experience with a Ford product would be a quality control issue, such as software problems and mechanical failures. Quote, we are catching quality issues before they leave the door. That means our teams are doing their job and following processes so we prevent issues from reaching our customers, Buzkowski told the Courier Journal. Ford has three components of quality control. Preventing, which is what is happening at the Louisville plant. Earlier this month, Ford halted production of its F-150 Lightning at its Dearborn, Michigan plant due to a battery issue. Ford said that the plant production halt and the production halt of the Louisville assembly plant are unrelated. The UAW will go to the bargaining table with Ford later this year to negotiate a new union contract. The last union contract was ratified in 2019. Quote, we also learn from these new ways to approach initiatives by Ford Motor Company is to find new solutions that we focus to deliver in upcoming negotiations through proposals from leadership and concerns from the plant floors across our country, Dunn told The Courier-Journal. The next story is entitled Former UK Student Indicted Following Viral Incident by Ray Johnson. A former student at the University of Kentucky has been indicted on several charges after being caught on video using racial slurs and physically assaulting a black student last year. A video of Sophia Rosing went viral in November 2022, showing her apparently intoxicated and using, quote, racial slurs and offensive language, according to a letter from Eli Capilouto, the university's president. Rosing was indicted Tuesday in Fayette Circuit Court on multiple charges, including felony assault in the third degree of a police or probation officer. The video shows Rosing repeatedly attempting to hit Kyla Spring, a first-year student from Memphis, while calling Spring racial slurs. Rosing, a senior at the time, also allegedly attempted to bite Spring and in a separate video grabbed a shopping cart and appeared to push it toward Spring and another person. A resident assistant can be heard asking Rosing her name, and she continued to use the racial slur. A campus officer can be seen arresting Rosing at the end of the video. Rosing's lawyer later announced she would withdraw from the university. She initially pleaded not guilty to charges during an arraignment in November of 2022, and was bonded out of jail the same day, according to an Associated Press report. Capaluto released a statement a few days after the incident, in which he announced Rosing would be permanently banned from campus and ineligible to re-enroll at UK. Quote, as a community working wholeheartedly to prevent racist violence, we also must be committed to holding people accountable for their actions. The processes we have in place are essential, he said in the release. The university also announced that it would be re-upping its diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts by using a $10 million investment for its Unite Research Priority Area, DEI Learning Modules for Students in the University's UK 101 courses, and, quote, supporting small minority women and veteran-owned businesses and vendors through our supplier diversity program. The university also said it would remove and relocate a, quote, controversial mural from the 1930s, increase mental health support, and a, quote, renewed focus on DEI officers in colleges. Rosings' next court date is scheduled for March 17th. This concludes readings for the first sections of the Courier-Journal for Friday, February 24th, 2023. Stay tuned for the Metro
0: section to follow immediately. Your reader has been Chauncey Kurtz. This is Tom Lewis, the new Executive Director at Radio I. I feel thrilled and blessed to join the Radio I team, and I'm so excited to be part of what the future holds for us. And I do mean us. As a listener, you are an integral part of the Radio I team. What we do, we do for you. We strive to inform you and hopefully enrich your life in the process. So we sincerely want your input. I'd love to hear from you. If you have programming feedback or ideas please feel free to email me at tom.lewis@radioi.org, at or call 859-422-6390. Thanks. This is Tom Lewis, the new executive director at Radio I. I feel thrilled and blessed to join the Radio I team and I'm so excited to be part of what the future holds for us. And I do mean us. As a listener, you are an integral part of the Radio I team. What we do, we do for you. We strive to inform you and hopefully enrich your life in the process. So we sincerely want your input. I'd love to hear from you. If you have programming feedback or ideas, please feel free to email me at tom.lewis at radioi.org or call 859-422-6390. Thanks.
1: Now to continue reading from the Courier-Journal for Friday, February 24, 2023, starting with the Metro section. Your reader is Chauncey Kurtz. We will start with the obituaries. We read only the name, age, and location. If you would like further information on any of the obituaries, please call us during weekdays at 859-422-6390, and we will be glad to read the entire obituary for you. I will repeat that number at the end of the listings. Thomas Batista, age 83, in Louisville. James William Biggs Sr., age 77, from Russellville. Ronald Ronnie Blankenship, age 60, from Frankfort. Bobby Buckley, age 79, from Louisville. Daryl Busby, 0 years old, from Louisville. Wanda Campbell, 65, from Shelbyville. George Alpha Tubby Carpenter, 85, from Danville. Andre Santana Carter, 50, from Louisville. Scott Scotty Caudill, 61, from Lexington. Gail Ann Cecil, 67, from Louisville. Nancy Ann Mays Clark, 72, from Owensboro. Pollyann Harrod Coblin, 74, from Frankfort. Eddie Kulpis, 61, from Tompkinsville. Roger Cawtham, 58, from Lebanon Junction. Sandra Sandy Jean Harold Cox, 73, from Concord, North Carolina. Elizabeth Foot Cross, 67, from Elizabethtown. Walter Bill Deaton. 80, from Louisville. James Jim Dietrich, 68, from Clarksville. Charlie Doss, 72, from Cadiz. Johnny Echoltz, 59, from Charlestown. Rose Irvin, 47, from Edmonton. Doris Evans, 72, from Calhoun. Joseph Randall Fogle, 81, from Loretto. Jewel Garman, 78 from Maribone. Norbert George Gebhardt Jr., 81 from Louisville. Dr. William Grise, 94 from Richmond. Louis Louis Wayne Harvey, 67 from Comiskey. Scott Kando Hayes, 59 from Louisville. Joanne Hazelwood, 88 from Utica. Carolyn Workman Henderson, 60, from Greensburg. Paul Ray Hurst, 79, from New Albany, Indiana. Barbara Ann Jump, 70, from Crab Orchard. James Richard Kaiser, 78, from Louisville. Tevis K. Keller, 84, from Louisville. Robert McPherson, 92, from Tompkinsville. Jerry Lynn Melton, 69, from Corydon, Indiana; Donald L. Mychel, Sr., 84, from Madison; Carl Miller, 79, from Frankfort; Edna N. Newell, 95, from Danville; Tylecia Yvette Powell, 35, from Louisville; Charles Puckett Jr., 24, from Louisville. Paulo Robinson, 75, from Floyd's Knob. Rebecca Jean Scott, 62, from Louisville. Bobby Joe Singleton, 61, from Louisville. Eudora Lynn Smith, 69, from Jeffersonville. David W. Stroud, 87, from Sellersburg, Indiana. Gordon McLean Taylor, 90, from Frankfort. Johann Elizabeth Hannon Towns, 66 from Tucker. Claudette K. Vian, 76 from Louisville. Patricia Ann Kelly Walker, 85 from Rockport, Missouri. Audrey Wallace, 68 from Elizabethtown. Jeanette Hayden Warren, 85 from Owensboro. Helen Watts, 86 from Liberty and Richard R. Wilson, 51, from Louisville. If you would like further information about any of the listings today, call us during the weekdays at 859-422-6390, and we will be glad to read the entire item to you. The first story from the Metro section is entitled Press Group Flags Donor ID Bill, Senate Votes to Shield Names from the Public by Joe Sanka. Frankfort, Kentucky. The state Senate passed a bill Wednesday intended to protect the privacy of donors to non organizations, though the Kentucky Press Association says it could jeopardize the First Amendment rights it seeks to protect. Senate Bill 62, sponsored by Senate, Senator Whitney Westerfield, Republican from Crofton, is intended to codify a US Supreme Court ruling striking down a California law that compelled major donors to nonprofits to be disclosed to the state attorney general. While no such bill to do so is currently advancing in Kentucky, Westerfield told the committee last week it would protect donors by prohibiting similar actions of a public agency to disclose such donors, quote out of an abundance of caution. The quote, personal information protected in the bill would include quote, any list, record, registry, role, roster, or other compilation of data of any kind that directly or indirectly identifies a person as a member, supporter, volunteer, or donor of financial or non-financial support to any nonprofit organization. The bill cleared a Senate committee with a unanimous vote last week but the Kentucky Press Association issued a statement Tuesday saying Senate Bill 62 infringes on other First Amendment rights of the public and press and, quote, exposes records custodians to frivolous lawsuits and serious financial liability. The statement from KPA attorneys John Fleischaker and Michael Abate says SB 62, quote, extends far beyond the Supreme Court ruling on the California law, restricting the right of the public and press to access what is deemed to be personal information of donors in court proceedings, with courts prohibited from allowing such information into the public record without first finding, quote, good cause. Under Senate Bill 62, the KPA attorney said courts, quote, must default to sealing and redacting personal information from the court record, and closing otherwise public trials to the press and public if personal information is presented. The KPA also says Senate Bill 62 imposes, quote, substantial civil and criminal liabilities on government officials who release such information, including a fine of at least $2,500 for those who inadvertently release information protected in the bill and a potential Class B misdemeanor with a 90-day jail sentence for those who knowingly release such information. Those draconian penalties quote, are much more likely to flood Kentucky's courts with frivolous lawsuits designed to cash in on an unwitting civil servant's incidental disclosure of benign information, and chill the production of non-exempt information in response to valid open records requests," Abate and Flyshaker said. The KPA added that it would not oppose the statute that codifies the Supreme Court's narrow ruling while striking sections involving the judicial branch, civil and criminal penalties on individuals, and the option for a person to request anonymity from a nonprofit organization that is affiliated with a public agency. That latter point was also raised by Amy Bernashever of the Kentucky Open Government Coalition, who wrote Senate Bill 62 would undermine a 2008 Kentucky Supreme Court ruling that the public had a right to information, on donors to the University of Louisville Foundation since it is a nonprofit affiliated with a public agency. Besides asserting the new exception for personal information under the Kentucky Open Records Act is too broad, Beneshaver wrote that Senate Bill sixty two would return state law on such disclosure to its pre two thousand eight status, quote Compromising the public's ability to hold nonprofit organizations affiliated with a public agency accountable. Asked to respond to the criticisms, Westerfield told the Courier Journal he spoke with the KPA prior to the committee meeting about its concerns, quote, and I appreciate their input. I believe the privacy of Kentucky nonprofit donors should be private and safe, consistent with the Bonta decision in a manner that protects Kentuckians' First Amendment rights, Westerfield said. The Senate passed Senate Bill 62 by a 31-3 to 3 vote on Wednesday, with minimal discussion. The next story is entitled, Relief Funds Oversight Approved. Legislature Wants Role in Preventing Fraud by Bruce Schreiner, Frankfurt, Kentucky. The Kentucky Senate voted Wednesday to create a layer of legislative oversight for relief funds, like the ones created by Governor Andy Beshear to help people recover from tornadoes and flooding. The bill, passed by the Senate on a 33-2 to vote, goes to the House next. The Democratic governor insists there's been full transparency of the funds, but the measure started advancing in the Republican-led legislature following reports that some checks supported by the Tornado Relief Fund went to people unaffected by the tragedy. Republican Senator Whitney Westerfield said a constituent received a tornado relief check despite not applying for one. Quote, I thought it was appropriate to get answers to those questions, said Westerfield, the bill's lead sponsor. Not a full-blown investigative audit, we'd like to know where the money went, how did you make the distribution decisions. Under Senate Bill 99, lawmakers would receive an annual report of the relief funds created by a government agency or elected official, including information on donors, expenditures, and recipients. It also seeks information on guidelines used to determine eligibility and allocate funds. Bashir created the funds following devastating tornadoes in western Kentucky in late 2021 and flooding that inundated portions of eastern Kentucky last summer. Relief money paid funeral expenses of victims and helped affected homeowners, renters, and farmers. Bashir has touted the fund's ability to respond quickly to help people and for the level of transparency, with a website tracking the distribution of money. Quote, this is an open book, Bashir said recently. Everything here is a public record. I've announced every single thing that we've done with it. It's been on the website. His administration's handling of the aid came under greater scrutiny after the state public protection cabinet late last year issued more than $10 million in $1,000 increments from a relief fund. Reports surfaced that some people unaffected by the tornadoes were mistakenly sent payments. Westerfield said Wednesday he appreciated the generosity of people who donated to help Kentuckians in need, but he said the relief funds raised constitutional questions about the state allocating money that wasn't appropriated by the legislature. The bill asks that the reports on such relief funds include the statutory and constitutional authority for a state agency to raise money and spend money absent a legislative appropriation. Quote, this works great when it's something all of us are in agreement with, Westerfield said. There's not a member up here from the far right to the far left to the middle that's going to oppose fundraising for people that are hurt in natural disaster areas. But what happens when when the cause is something that only half of us like. In a statement after the Bill 1 Senate passage, state GOP spokesperson Sean Southard said, We applaud the Senate for holding Andy accountable and seeking more transparency for the relief. Bashir, who is seeking re-election, has said the relief fund had an error or a fraud rate that is below 1%, which he said compares favorably to similar publicly managed funds across the country. The next story is Winter Storms Ravage Much of U.S. Cold Front Hits from California to Northern Plains by Jim Salter. Dangerous winter weather trapped drivers on icy roads, knocked out power to hundreds of thousands, and grounded multiple flights from California through the Northern Plains on Thursday. For the first time since 1989, the National Weather Service issued a blizzard warning through Saturday for Southern California mountains. Forecasters predicted, quote, multiple rounds of new snowfall, with accumulations up to 3 feet to 5 feet for the Sierra Nevada Range. Rare snow is also expected over some lower foothills and valleys. Rare snow is also expected over some lower foothills and valley areas near the Pacific coast, the Weather Service said, quote, given the depth of cold air that has infiltrated the west. The intense moisture in the air also creates an increased risk of flash flooding through Saturday, forecasters said. Some coastal areas could see waves as high as 10 to 14 feet through Thursday, forecasters said the series of storms sowed chaos from coast to coast. At one point Wednesday, more than 65 million people in more than two dozen states were under weather alerts. The Weather Service said temperatures in some parts of the upper Midwest could reach 40 degrees below average, while high readings on Thursday in the Mid-Atlantic and Southeast could get to 40 degrees above average. The wintry mix hit hard in the northern U.S., closing schools and offices and forcing churches to call off Ash Wednesday services. In Wyoming, the state transportation department posted on social media that roads across much of the southern part of the state were impassable. Rescuers tried to reach people stranded in vehicles, but high winds and drifting snow created a, quote, near impossible situation for them, said Sergeant Jeremy Beck of the Wyoming Highway Patrol. In the Pacific Northwest, high winds and heavy snow in the Cascade Mountains prevented search teams from reaching the bodies of three climbers killed in an avalanche on Washington's Coldchuck Peak over the weekend. Unexpectedly heavy snow during afternoon rush hour Wednesday sent dozens of cars spinning out in Portland, Oregon and caused hours-long traffic jams. The Regional Bus Service offered free rides to warming shelters for homeless individuals. In Arizona, several interstates and other highways were closed due to high winds, falling temperatures, and blowing snow. The Arizona Department of Transportation advised people not to travel. In California, a blizzard warning was in effect through Saturday for higher elevations of the Sierra Nevada, where forecasters said conditions could include several feet of snow, Blown by 60 mile per hour gusts and wind chill could drop the temperature to minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit. In Sacramento, the state capital, the Weather Service said it had received reports of something that might be either hail or grapple, soft, wet snowflakes encased in supercooled water droplets. Electrical grids took a beating in the north as heavy ice accumulations and gusty winds knocked down power lines. In California, lines were fouled with tree branches and other debris. In southwestern Michigan, a firefighter in the village of Pawpaw died Wednesday after coming in contact with a downed power line, authorities said. Van Buren County Sheriff Dan Abbott called it a tragic accident. More than 681,000 customers were without power in Michigan over 84,000 in Illinois, more than 58,000 in Wisconsin, about 42,000 in California, and about 32,000 in New York State as of Thursday morning, according to the website poweroutage.us. Weather also contributed to nearly 1,800 U.S. flight cancellations on Wednesday, and another 759 by Thursday morning, according to the tracking service FlightAware. Another 6,000-plus flights were delayed across the country. At Denver International Airport, Taylor Dotson, her husband Reggie, and their four-year-old daughter Reagan faced a two-hour flight delay to Nashville, Tennessee, on their way home to Belvedere, Tennessee. Reggie Dotson was in Denver to interview for a job as an airline pilot. Quote, I kind of think that's funny that we've experienced these types of delays, when that's what he's looking into getting into now is a career, Taylor Dotson said. Few places were untouched by the wild weather, including some at the opposite extreme. Longstanding record highs were broken in cities in the Midwest, Mid Atlantic, and Southeast. Nashville topped out Wednesday at eighty degrees Fahrenheit, breaking a one hundred and twenty seven year old record for the date, according to the Weather Service. Indianapolis, Cincinnati, Atlanta, Lexington, Kentucky, and Mobile, Alabama were among many other record-setters. No warm-up was forecast this week, though, in the northern U.S. More than 18 inches of snow could pile up in parts of Minnesota and Wisconsin, the National Weather Service said. According to the Weather Service, the biggest snow event on record in the Twin Cities was 28.4 inches from October 31st to November 3rd, 1991. As of Thursday morning, the Weather Service reported 16 inches of snow in the Minneapolis suburb of Savage and 10.1 inches at Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport, with only a little more expected. Many roads remained snow-covered and in some cases closed, it said. Thankfully, this storm didn't produce the amounts it had the potential to, but it still produced a lot, and combined with the windy conditions, it is simply not safe to travel right now, the Weather Service tweeted. Temperatures could plunge as low as minus 20 degrees Fahrenheit Thursday and to minus 25 degrees Fahrenheit on Friday in Grand Forks, North Dakota. Wind chills may fall to minus 50 degrees Fahrenheit, said Nathan Rick, a meteorologist in Grand Forks. Powerful winter weather will make its way toward the east coast later this week. Places that don't get snow may get dangerous amounts of ice, forecasters warn. The next story is entitled, Buddha Judge Visits Site of Derailment. Transportation Secretary Criticized Over Response. East Palestine, Ohio. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg visited East Palestine, Ohio on Thursday to tour the site where a train wrecked nearly three weeks ago as the government faces growing criticism over the federal response to the derailment. The February third derailment led to evacuations and fears of air and water contamination after a controlled burn of toxic chemicals aimed at preventing an explosion. The Biden White House has defended its response to the derailment, saying officials from the Environmental Protection Agency, National Transportation Safety Board, and other agencies were at the rural site within hours of the derailment. The White House says it has also offered federal assistance and FEMA has been coordinating with the State Emergency Operations Center and other partners. Buttigieg has faced criticism for not visiting the site earlier, including from former President Donald Trump, who came to Ohio on Wednesday. The Department of Transportation said Judge is visiting now that the Environmental Protection Agency declared the emergency phase of the crash to be over and the start of long-term cleanup efforts is underway. More than three dozen freight cars, including 11 carrying hazardous materials, derailed on the outskirts of East Palestine near the Pennsylvania state line, prompting an evacuation as fears grew about a potential explosion of smoldering wreckage. Officials seeking to avoid an uncontrolled blast intentionally released and burned toxic vinyl chloride from all five rail cars, sending flames and black smoke high into the sky. That left people questioning the potential health effects, even as authorities maintained they were doing their best to protect people. As remediation of the site continued, Norfolk Southern announced late Wednesday it had agreed to excavate the soil under two tracks. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine had called out the railroad company's failure to address the contaminated soil underneath its tracks before repairing them and running freight again. Quote, Our original plan would have effectively and safely remediated the soil under our tracks. As I listened to community members over the past two weeks, They shared with me their concerns about that approach. I appreciate the direct feedback, and I am addressing it, Norfolk Southern President and CEO Alan H. Shaw said in a written statement. U.S. Representative Chris Deluzio, a Democrat from Pennsylvania, whose district borders the East Palestine disaster site, asked Norfolk Southern to expand the boundaries of the geographic zone in which it is providing financial assistance and testing. He asserted the current zone excludes many affected Pennsylvania residents and businesses, and said the company should commit to cleaning up soil and water up to 30 miles beyond it. Quote, Norfolk Southern is failing to show any commitment to rebuilding lost trust in our community, Deluzio wrote in a letter to Shaw. Providing additional resources, quote, would help your company restore the sense of security that the Norfolk Southern train derailment and its aftermath destroyed. Toxic Wastewater from Derailment Headed to Texas Toxic wastewater used to extinguish a fire following a train derailment in Ohio is headed to a Houston suburb for disposal. Quote, I in my office heard today that firefighting water from East Palestine, Ohio train derailment is slated to be disposed of in our county, Harris County Judge Lina Hidalgo said Wednesday. The wastewater is being sent to Texas Molecular, which injects hazardous waste into the ground for disposal. The Texas Commission on Environmental Quality said Texas Molecular, quote, is authorized to accept and manage a variety of waste streams, including vinyl chloride, as part of their hazardous waste permit and underground injection control permit. The next story is Gunman Kills 3, including reporter on initial shooting by David Fisher, and Frida Frizaro, A gunman accused of killing a woman in the Orlando area returned to the same neighborhood hours later and shot four more people, killing a journalist covering the original shooting and a nine-year-old child, Florida police said. Spectrum News 13 identified the slain reporter Thursday as Dylan Lyons. Photographer Jesse Walden was also wounded. The two were in an unmarked news vehicle on Wednesday afternoon covering the first homicide when a man approached and shot them, Orange County Sheriff John Mina said during a news conference. The man then went to a nearby home where he fatally shot Tyona Major and critically wounded her mother. Officials have not yet released the name of the girl's mother. The sheriff said police have detained Keith Melvin Moses, 19, who they believe is responsible for all the shootings. Mina said police didn't immediately know the motive for the shootings. He said Moses was acquainted with Natasha Augustin, 38, who was the first victim, but did not appear to have a connection with any of the others. He said it was not clear if Moses knew that two of the people shot were journalists and noted their vehicle didn't look like a typical news van or have the station's logo on it. It was not immediately known whether Moses has a lawyer who can speak on his behalf. A man who called 911 after Augustin was shot told investigators that he was driving around smoking cannabis with her when he spotted Moses walking along a road. He said Moses, quote, seemed down, so he offered him a ride according to an arrest affidavit. Moses got into the vehicle directly behind Augustin, and about 30 seconds later, he, quote, heard a loud bang and saw blood on Augustin's face. He said he stopped, and Moses left the vehicle. The driver called 911. Quote, I want to acknowledge what a horrible day this has been for our community and our media partners, Mina told a room full of reporters. Quote, no one in our community, not a mother and not a nine-year-old, and certainly not news professionals, should become the victims of gun violence in our community. On Wednesday morning, deputies responded to the Pine Hills area just north of Orlando after reports that a woman in her 20s was shot. Lyons and Walden were shot hours later while covering that shooting, followed by the mother and daughter, according to police and witnesses. WFTV crews, who were also reporting on the morning shooting, tried to give medical aid to the Spectrum 13 journalists. This concludes excerpts from the Courier-Journal for Friday, February 24, 2023. Your reader has been Chauncey Kurtz. Please stay tuned for continued programming on Radio I.